Good morning, everybody. Glad to be back in worship with you all. Um, I, for two of my summers in college, I worked for a summer camp. I was wondering, is that the case for anybody else? You worked summer camp in college, anybody? It's it's only a task for the not faint of heart. and I apparently, I went back for, for seconds, I don't know why. Uh, but one thing about working at this particular, and I guess any Christian summer camp, um, is that they encouraged us to have a quiet time before we woke up our campers. Um, quiet time being time in scripture, time in devotion to God, reading, uh, praying, however that might look. Um, I was on board for that, but we woke up our campers at seven in the morning, and that's already very difficult for me. (laughs) So I wasn't as on board with getting up even earlier, um, because if I get up early, I need to be doing something immediately. If I'm sitting like in a church pew, I will fall asleep. <laughs> so <laughs> that became pretty difficult for me. And the other thing was that everybody did their quiet times on the front porch of the cabins and the cabins were in this big circle. <laughs> so you could see who was and who was not doing their quiet times every morning, (laughs) who was late, who didn't get, you know, get to it. And uh, at Christian camps, the kind of things that we talk about were like, so what is, what is God teaching you in your quiet time? How was that this morning? And so I felt like I had needed to do my quiet time so that I could have an answer for that. And because everybody could see me if I didn't they could see that I wasn't there or that I was there. Um, and I, start, I started off pretty strong, um, started off feeling like pretty good, I can do this. But as the weeks ter- went on and it was week five and six, I was, it was getting rough and it was getting hard to, to get out there earlier. And I was growing to resent getting up and reading my Bible. I didn't want to do it. I was just doing it because I had to, because I felt like I had to. I think oftentimes we find ourselves doing things like that, that are, in, that are following God, things that we do to follow God. We find ourselves doing that out of obligation. Now there are plenty of things that we do out of obligation. We go to every soccer game that our kid plays in or that our nephew plays in. We go to our uh, work parties that are after work hours. We uh, go to maybe our spouse's family reunion. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure you, no, I'm sure you actually wanna go to that. Um, Or if you're like me in like, was it January, February? Those little Girl Scouts, they, they plant their little tables right outside of the Kroger and Tom Thumb. How am I going to pass by? I have to. I have to, right? It's purely for their self-confidence. <laughs> Not because I want the cookie. But you also feel like you have to. You can't say no. But I think also sometimes 
things that we do out of obligation. Maybe it's reading the Bible. Maybe it's praying, coming to church, serving, helping out somebody we see on the street. Sometimes those things we do out of obligation. And if this has been you, or if this is you today, I know that at some point, you did those things because you wanted to. You came to church because you wanted to be here. You wanted to be around your community. You gave to the church because how much the church has impacted you and because you were just feeling the the generosity of God in your life that you wanted to pour right back out. You wanted to open your Bible and learn more about God's love and just you were overwhelmed by all the things that the Bible could teach and you couldn't get enough. You wanted to do all of these things at some point. But right now, maybe following God feels like something you have to do. The things that you do to follow God feel like obligations. Now, there was a couple in the very early church, like the, the very first group of people, hadn't even called themselves a church yet, but they, they were struggling with that feeling of feeling like they had to, feeling like following God was something they had to do. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira, so say that three times fast, <laughs> but also bear with me for having to say that many times throughout the rest of this message, but their story wraps up our weird series, as Doug mentioned earlier, that we've been in these kind of weird stories, and um, I know we are ready for this, this series to be over at, um, the people preparing messages for it. Um, And this scripture in particular, I found weird for a reason different from like the JL and Sisera episode or from Noah and his sons. Those were weird things that happened, but this this story, it's, it's that it doesn't quite make sense. The series of events just doesn't, make sense, that feels like there's something, some details missing, that we are have, we're gonna have to use our brains to fill in the gaps there. And it's almost easier to explain those other things like walking on water and, and burning in the burning bush because it's very clearly God is speaking something miraculous, but with something like this, we have to use our brains a little bit more to try to understand where is the hope, where is the grace of God in this God's holy word. So let's find ourselves in Acts chapter five, starting in verse one. I'll be reading from this common English Bible. It says, however, a man named Ananias, along with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he withheld some of the proceeds from the sale. 
he brought the rest and placed it in care and under the authority of the apostles. Peter asked Ananias, how is it that Satan has influenced you to lie to the Holy Spirit by withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of your land? Wasn't that property yours to keep? After you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with whatever you wanted? What made you think of such a thing? You haven't lied to other people, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. Everyone who heard this conversation was terrified. Some young men stood up, wrapped his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife entered, but she didn't know what had happened to her husband, but Peter asked her, tell me, did you receive, did you and your husband receive this, this price for the field? And she responded, yes, that is the amount. And he replied, how could you scheme with each other like this to challenge the, spirit, the Lord's spirit? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door they will carry you out too. And at that very moment, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men entered and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her with her husband. Trepidation and dread seized the whole church and all who heard what had happened. The word of God, maybe, <laughs> for the people of God? <laughs> Thanks be to God, I think so. Maybe. <laughs> so let's, let's break down what happened just so we can track along this story. So Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their land. They keep some of the money, but then they give the rest of it to Peter and the apostles. Then Peter scolds Ananias for lying to God, and then Ananias drops dead, and his body is carried out. And then the same thing happens with Sapphira, that, she's, that Peter scolds her for lying, and she also drops dead and is buried. So I, f I personally feel like there's a few pieces missing in that story. Um, we don't know what it is that Ananias is actually lying about. Peter accuses him very strongly of a lie, but we aren't told exactly what it is that he's lied about. And then the death that happened to both of them as this punishment, apparently, for lying, seems a little strong. For, our, for the God we know and love, the, the God who just showed us how to love and be merciful through his son, Jesus, that seems a little harsh to turn around and do that. Especially since Ananias did give them most of the money. It's not like he went to them and was like, I sold all my land and keeping it, sorry, he gave most of the money. So it, seems like a, it just seems like a really harsh punishment, in my opinion. And 
it seems that his punishment is specifically for lying when all logic would tell us that the punishment would be for keeping the money for himself. Because that seems to be the detail that stuck out, but what is not included is what he's lying about. So what he's lying about is where we have to fill in the gaps that he's lying about this being the full amount. He must be lying in portraying that this is the full amount of money. He must have lied by not saying that he kept some for himself. Now that's, that's what struck me as particularly weird about this passage. I could not, for the life of me, figure out why would Ananias lie? Why would he lie and give most of his money? I could, it doesn't make sense, right? Why would either lie and say, I didn't have any land to sell, I don't have any money, but instead he gives most of his money and lies. And I couldn't figure out what's the purpose of him lying about giving this money. Why couldn't he have just said, here's 80, 90% of the proceeds from my land. This is 90% of it. Like what, what was wrong with him doing that? Why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he do that? But the, the more I thought about it, the only things that I could come up with is that he's trying to make he and Sapphira, they're trying to make themselves look better, that it must be a self-serving reason for this lie, that for some reason it will look better for them to have portrayed giving everything rather than being honest about keeping some of it. And maybe, maybe it's that he feels like he's supposed to give everything he, he didn't for some reason. So he, he feels like he's supposed to give it all, so that's why he lies about, yes, actually I did give it all. Or maybe he, he's afraid of what would happen if he were honest about, I didn't give all of everything, that he would be ostracized from the community, that he would be kicked out, that there would be judgment. Or maybe he felt guilty Maybe they felt guilty that they weren't giving everything. So to make themselves feel a little bit better, they pretended like they were. So those, those three reasons, that, that being afraid of judgment or feeling like he had to, that obligation, or feeling guilty if he didn't give, those, those three reasons are what my, my therapists like to call fog. It's the fear, obligation, and guilt. So whenever we do, these th do things because we're afraid, because we feel like we have to, or because we feel guilty if we don't, whenever we're making decisions based on those things, that's, that's a red flag, that should make our little sensors go up and think something's not 
right here. I'm sorry, I didn't know. I, I'm sure you didn't know you were going to therapy this morning, but bear, <laughs> bear with me. Are other people making us fear this fi- fear, feel this fear, obligation, or guilt? Or are we misinterpreting the signals? Are we misunderstanding and we're making ourselves, a f- putting that on ourselves, of that fear, that obligation, or guilt? Am I praying because I feel like I have to? Am I helping this person because I will feel guilty if I don't? Am I going to church because I'm afraid of what would happen if I didn't? If God would be mad at me? If God would withhold something from me? Or am I doing these things because I want to? Unpacking these motivations can help us figure out why we feel a certain way when we do those things like reading scripture or going to a a friend's dinner that we feel obligated to go to. We can learn about why we end up feeling crummy after doing those things or not doing those things. And it can help us to live more authentically. It can unpack a lot of pain and unpack a lot of shame. Because if we, seeing if we're living in the fog can help us to see if we're actually forgetting God's grace for us. And that seems to be what happened to Ananias and to Sapphira. And so I wanna backtrack to the verses right before their story because these verses tell us about the early church. So immediately before Ananias and Sapphira's story in chapter four of Acts, starting in verse 32, it says that the community of believers was in one heart and one mind. None of them would say, this is mine about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them all. There was no needy person among them. Those who owned properties or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds from the sales and place them under the care and authority of the apostles. Then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. And Joseph, who the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, that is the one who encourages, was a Levite from Cyprus. And he owned a field, sold it, brought the money, and placed it in the care and the authority of the apostles. So this, this is describing what the early church looked like that they lived in such unity, that they were truly a community, a common unity within each other. Nothing that they felt like belonged to them could belong to anybody else. They, they felt like everything was, was everybody's. What's mine is yours. I have no need for my own possessions, for we can all share. We are all part of God's kingdom. We are all children of God. 
They lived as resurrection people. They, they lived with an abundance of grace that was at work among all of them. And that means that they, they were all filled with God's grace that they had for them, that God's grace for themselves. And that, uh, that grace that they felt from God was abounding, it was overflowing out of them. And that is how they acted, and that's what caused all their actions, was this abundance of grace. And when you're aware of God's grace, when you are filled with God's grace and mercy for you, it just, it can't help but spill out. That is the only response that comes from having God's grace and love. Following God shouldn't come from an obligation, but in response to God's grace. Shouldn't come from an obligation, but as an outpouring response to the grace that God has poured into you. Going to church, serving, giving people money, those things aren't obligations that God gives, God directs us to have, but they're instead responses that God encourages us to do as a response to God's love. That out of the natural outpouring, naturally outpouring grace of God, that is what we will do, is love and sacrifice and be generous. And I'm afraid that many of us were taught to do things like reading the Bible, going to church, serving, that we were taught to do those things because that's what a good Christian does. That's just what we do. I don't know why, it's just what I'm supposed to do. Or even some of us maybe were taught, if you don't do those things, you're going somewhere else. And if that, if that is how following God has been for you, I am really, really sorry. Because that's exhausting. It's exhausting to try to follow God purely out of an obligation, out of fear, out of guilt. That is absolutely not what God intended for God's precious children. God did not intend for our actions to be as a fulfillment of fear or obligation or guilt. That's not what God designed the church to do. God designed the church to be a place filled with abundant grace, where grace is abounding, where we are so filled with the love of God and know the grace of God so deeply within us that we can't help but pour it out to everybody. That's what God designed for our actions, that they would come from a place of grace, that they would come as a response of grace. Because in God's grace, there is no fear or obligation 
or guilt. There is only love. So in response to God's grace in this early church, some, some of these people sold their land and they gave the proceeds to, their, to the apostles. This was their choice because they were so filled with the abundant grace of God that this is how they chose to respond by pouring it right back out. I don't need this land. Other people need resources. They can use mine. It was an abundance of grace that they chose to do this. And that's, that's even what Peter points out to Ananias that, hey, you, you had the choice. You made this decision. Nobody made you do this. Nobody made you sell this land. And the money was yours to do with, you, do with what you wanted to do with it. But for some reason, you, you chose to lie about it. Ananias and Sapphira were missing the point of what was being done when, get, when they were giving up their money to the apostles. They thought it was just about, I'm supposed to do this. This is what I'm supposed to do. I don't feel great about doing it. That's why I'm gonna keep some of it, maybe. They were missing the grace part. They were missing that this was supposed to be an action out of response to God's grace for them. Somehow they had forgotten or fallen out of touch with God's grace that was always readily available to them, but for some reason it, it just did not click with them. And that, that falling out of touch with grace had led them to lie and it led them to deceit. And in this very weird story, it led them to drop, do, drop dead. But I hope that you can hear that being in the fog, that forgetting, forgetting about God's grace and doing things out of a fear or obligation or guilt, that does not mean death. That's not what this story is trying to say. But I think more so that being out of touch with God's grace, leading them to which leads them to deceit, that early on in the church, that deceit was really dangerous for the formation of the church. This was the first church they had nothing to base this off of. So perhaps it was to show that when they do things, when we do things out of fear, out of obligation or guilt, that we end up hurting ourselves. Or maybe it's that their death was symbolic of what would happen to the church if people went on forgetting what God's grace, forgetting that God's grace was in them. What would happen if deceitfulness started be, to become a pattern that the church would suffer? Or if people started to fall out of touch with God's grace, the church and they would suffer. So whenever we act in ways that aren't pure love, it means that we have for some reason momentarily forgotten about God's abundant grace for us. 
So if, if you ever find yourself doing something out of fear, out of obligation or guilt, what if you paused and remembered a time when you wanted to do those things? When you wanted to read scripture, when you wanted to come to church, what was it that made you want that? There was some feeling of the abundant love of God that stirred that in you. And I don't know the magic words to help you get back to that feeling, but I would try to channel that. Remind yourself, this is possible. I did this before. I've wanted to do this before because at one point I did know, even if right now I don't, I did know God's love abounds for me. What is it about following God right now that feels like an obligation? When you find yourselves in those moments of fog and following God, channel that time. Think back to when it was when you were abounding in God's grace, when you felt truly loved by God. We can also help one another to experience the abundance of God's grace and love by showing that to each other. And that stirs, that stirs something in that person and they, they act in abundance of grace and it goes on and on. We are a community that believes in the abundance of God's grace, but I don't think we all always act like it. What would it look like if we all acted all, every action we did in following God came from truly a place of a response to the overflowing, abundant grace God has for us. What would our community look like? Not just our church, what would our community look like? What would the world look like if we all chose to respond out of abundant grace that God has for us? I think it would look a lot like the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Loving God, we thank you for your abundant grace, for all the ways that you have shown us love and mercy. God, would you fill our hearts, our spirits with that love? Because God, we are so quick to forget. And we start to do things out of an obligation, out of fear and out of guilt. And God, we know that is not from you. Would you help us to notice those moments when we start to act out of, not out of an abundance of grace, but for other reasons, God, would you remind us of your grace for us. God, would you empower us by your spirit to act upon the grace that you've given us, to show that grace to others so that others may know there is no fear or guilt or shame in your love. It's in your almighty and loving name we pray, amen.